I'd like to welcome you all to church this morning, and as we begin, Pastor John has an announcement about the food pantry. Good morning. Good to have you here this morning. Uh, this, our ministry spotlight today highlights our church's food pantry, and you can see we're doing our Thanksgiving food drive here this morning. Uh, the food pantry is a very active ministry in our church. In fact, in the last six months or so, we've served around 70 different households. Uh, from the food pantry. And those households, I say, I use the word household because a lot of times uh, those households include extended family, grandmas and grandpas and, uh, you know, uh, cousins and brothers and sisters and adult children who have, or are living together in order to, uh, you know, save money. And so we serve a lot of folks in that 60 to 70 households. And there are a number of ways that you can be involved. Of course, we always are grateful for food donations. And we, in fact, we have our own handy-dandy, snazzy food uh, bags that you can take with you to the store, the grocery store, put some food in it, and drop it off here at the church. You can take these from the church with you and and drop them back full. So that's one way you can help. Uh, If you're interested in volunteering, there are different ways you can volunteer. We have people who shop for us when specific things are needed or be a part of organizing in the food pantry. You know, there will be people who will organize all of this food later today and get it down there. Uh, And so those are ways you can help. And of course, always uh, donations are accepted for the food pantry so that we can keep doing this vital ministry. So we're grateful for your support of it. If If you would like more information, stop one of the pastors or check on the website or call the church office. And we're uh, happy to have you be a part of it. Thank you. Let's stand and sing together. Just like a tree that grows by the water Let the strong winds blow, I will not move Just like a child secure in the love of a father Never letting go, I cling to you No room for fear and doubt No matter what I'm facing The song of my heart is ringing out I'll stand on your promise, I will not be moved Nothing can tear us apart My faith won't be shaken, I'm anchored in you In death and in life you remain The song of my heart, strong foundation Everything else will fade but you remain In every situation No room for fear and
With angels and saints we sing worthy are you, Lord. You stood before creation. Eternity. spoke the earth into motion my soul now to stand you stood before my failure carry the cross for my shame my sin went upon your shoulders so now to stand. So what can I say? What can I do? Offer this heart, oh God, completely. Father, we come today to offer our hearts to you. We come today believing that you are who you say you are and that you invite us to come into your presence.
to worship you, to learn of you, to hear you, to speak to you. Thank you for being present with us. Father, today as we gather, we want to thank you for your presence in, in our lives as we, we think about those who are grieving. And we pray especially for the family of Marjorie Kellogg. We pray for all who are struggling with health issues, relational issues, issues of trust and, and wisdom about the future. Just all of the ways in which we struggle, Lord, temptations that, that dog us. Lord, in all of this, may we sense your presence giving us the help that we need to be who you want us to be. We pray, Father, that that, uh, you will continue to bless us as a church. And we thank you for being uh, present with us in our ministries. And we look at this food up here and we think about the food pantry and all the people that we're able to help. Lord, we are so glad to do that. We would love to do more. We want people to know who you are as we help meet their very real needs. So give us grace to do that. And we pray not only for our church, but we pray for the fellowship, Wesleyan Church in West Seneca, Pastor Neil Copen. Pour out your spirit upon this body of believers that as they serve you, as they, as they love you and love one another, may they know your grace upon them. Father, we pray for our world Pray for Ben and Christine Hageman as they are in the, in the finishing weeks of their, uh, their fall in Benin, West Africa. May their ministry be fruitful in these next weeks and continue to be fruitful. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters in Chetnia. Very, very, very small percentage of people are Christians. And they face hardships and difficulties. We pray for Christians like Alina. And others who are so isolated, give them courage and strength to live their faith in a way that causes others to want to know about their faith. And Father, we pray for all who are grieving, recovering, struggling with recent disasters and tragedies. People who find themselves as refugees, people who live in war zones and conflict. We ask, Father, that you would bring your peace and your grace in a way that is so real to everyone who, are, who is facing these difficult circumstances. Lord, we want to thank you for the, uh, the prayer vigil that is concluding today, these last three weeks of coming to pray. And you have once again done amazing things. And we pray, Father, that this, these three weeks will not really come to an end as much as they will be a, a catalyst to continue to pray, to continue to seek your face, to continue to look to you as the source of all that we are and all that we might ever be. We thank you, Father, for for hearing our prayers, those we pray when we're here, those we pray when we're not here. And we offer these prayers, all of our prayers, in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The scripture reading for today comes from various verses in Zechariah. In November of the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord gave this message to the prophet Zechariah. I, the Lord, was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, say to the people, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Return to me and I will return to you. Don't be like your ancestors who would not listen or pay attention when the earlier prophets said to them, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Turn from your evil ways and stop all your evil practices. Everything I said through my servants, the prophets, happened to your ancestors, just as I said. As a result, they repented and said, We have received what we deserve from the Lord of heaven's armies. He has done what he said he would do. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. I will let you walk among these others standing here. Soon I'm going to bring my servant the branch, and I will remove the sins of this land in a single day. And on that day, 
Each of you will invite your neighbors to sit with you peacefully under your own grapevine and fig tree. Then another message came to me from the Lord of Heaven's armies. My love for Mount Zion is passionate and strong. I am consumed with passion for Jerusalem. I am returning to Mount Zion, and I will live in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, the holy mountain. For this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. I was determined to punish you when your ancestors angered me, and I did not change my mind. But now I'm determined to bless Jerusalem and the people of Judah, so don't be afraid. But this is what you must do. Tell the truth to each other. Render verdicts in your courts that are just and that lead to peace. Don't scheme against each other. Stop your love of telling lies that you swear are the truth. I hate all these things, says the Lord. I will strengthen Judah and save Israel. I will restore them because of my compassion. It will be as though I had never rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, who will hear their cries. The people of Israel will become like mighty warriors, and their hearts will be made happy as if by wine. Their children, too, will see it and be glad. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. Watch, for the day of the Lord is coming. On that day, the sources of light will no longer shine, yet there will be continuous day. Only the Lord knows how this could happen. There will be no normal day and night, for at evening time, it will still be light. On that day, life-giving waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half toward the Dead Sea and half toward the Mediterranean, flowing continuously in both summer and winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there will be one Lord— His name alone will be worshipped. On that day, even the harness bells of the horses will be inscribed with these words, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the temple of the Lord will be as sacred as the basins used beside the altar. In fact, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of Heaven's armies. All who come to worship will be free to use any of these pots to boil their sacrifices. And on that day... There will no longer be traitors in the temple of the Lord of heaven's armies. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to mention just a couple of things to you uh, happening in the life of our church. Uh, We have a couple of inserts in your bulletin. One of them is about uh, just some information about stewardship and uh, financial financial things of the church. I include that once a month. If you're a college student, we would really love for you to fill out this form, this insert in the bulletin. If you didn't get a bulletin, you don't have the insert, just grab one on your way out. There's a box in the lower foyer that you can stick them in. Or later when the offering is taken, just drop it in the offering plate. But we would love to do a better job of connecting with you. And so if you could help us out by just filling this out, that would be awesome. We'd appreciate that. And... um, I promise you we won't spam you with a bunch of email and things like that. Um, I also wanted to mention that um, we collected 183 shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child. Thank you for everyone who gave, who participated, and uh, came to the church or made your own. Thank you so much, and thanks to Just Romance for uh, organizing all of that. And I also wanted to make you aware, as I mentioned, the prayer. We are concluding our three-week 24-7 prayer vigil today at 5 o'clock. There are still a couple of times open this afternoon if you would like the opportunity to, to be in the prayer room before we end this vigil. The prayer room is always open, and so you can come anytime, but uh, we're ending this particular prayer event on, at 5 o'clock today. And we're gathering here in the sanctuary for a closing service. We'd love to have you be a part of this. If you came to the prayer, prayer room, uh, please come. Even if you didn't, that's okay. You can hear stories of others, and we're going to sing and share together. And uh, just give thanks to God for what he's done in our lives through this time of prayer. Let me invite you to stand and share a word of greeting with each other.
I'm gonna tell you about the coming of the judgment. Fare thee well, fare thee well. I'm gonna tell you about the coming of the judgment. Fare thee well, fare thee well. There's a better day a coming. Fare thee well, fare thee well. There's a better day a coming. Fare thee well, fare thee well. In that great a getting up morning. Fare thee well, fare thee well. In that great a getting up morning. Fare thee well. Fare thee well, when you see the lightning flashing, fare thee well, fare thee well, when you hear the thunder crashing, fare thee well, fare thee well, when you see the stars are falling, fare thee well, fare thee well, when you hear the chariots calling, fare thee well, fare thee well, in that great a getting up morning, fare thee well, fare thee well, in that great a getting up morning, fare thee well. Fairly well when you see the lightning flashing, when you hear the thunder crashing, when you see the stars are falling, when you hear the chariots calling. Good news, good news, chariots are coming. Good news, good news, chariots are coming. So glad, so glad, chariots are coming, and I don't want to be left out. There's a long white robe in the heaven I know. Long white robe in the heaven I know. Long white robe in the heaven I know. I said good news. Good News, chariots are coming, good news, chariots are coming, so glad, so glad, chariots are coming, and I don't want to be left out. In that great, a getting up morning, fairly well, fairly well, in that great, a getting up morning, fairly well, fairly well, in that great, a getting up morning, fairly well, fairly well, in that great, a getting up morning, fairly well. What an awesome day that's going to be, right? Man. An awesome day when God takes us to be with him, when he comes to dwell with us, when God brings in his kingdom in every way that he's always wanted it to be. And, and a lot of times when we think about that day, we have negative thoughts. I mean, after all, I mean, the song says, lightning flashing, thunder crashing, you got stars falling, chariots calling. I mean, these are images that sometimes frighten us. But the reality is for God's people, it's a glorious day. We get to be with Jesus. And we get to experience the fullness of all that God created us to experience and to be. This book of Zechariah is a book that calls us to think about that day and how it affects how we live this day. The book of Zechariah is 14 chapters. It is the longest book, the largest book of all the minor prophets. I debated us reading it today, but then that would be all we would probably do by the time we get through 14 chapters. But you ought to read it because it's powerful. Some of it's hard to understand. There's a lot, the first half of it is all these different visions that Zechariah has. And sometimes visions are hard to interpret. But I think underlying this message of Zechariah is this call for us to be his people. And to be his people is, is to be people who want what God wants. And what God wants is to see every person in the world come to know him. Come to experience him. That on that day, everybody would celebrate the coming of the Lord. Zechariah is a contemporary of Haggai we talked about last week. And um, both of them uh, come to Jerusalem to help the Israelites get reestablished after being in exile for 70 years. A big part of Haggai's prophecy is to rebuild the temple. They started on it, but they stopped. 15, 20 years later, it's still sitting there, just the foundation. And so Haggai says, look, you got to rebuild the temple because the temple is the visible sign of God's presence with you. 
Zechariah comes along and he also addresses a little bit about the temple. But he has bigger things in mind and he's trying to say, saying to us, look, rebuilding the temple is not just so you have a place to worship God. Rebuilding the temple is a means of helping other people come and worship God. Because the ultimate purpose, the ultimate end of all that God does in our lives is to make us his agents of grace and hope in a world that is chaos and brokenness and struggle. This is what God is asking of his people. You see in chapter 2, verse 8, that he talks about how Jerusalem is so full of people, everybody can't even live in the city. When you get to the, the 14th chapter and the 16th verse, he said, talks about how all the nations are going to come and worship in the temple in Jerusalem. That's God's intent. It always has been his intent. That all of the people he created, everyone he loves, would come to know his love. And he calls us, his people, to be his agents of sharing that and living that and, and helping people understand that in our world. It was the, it was the message, it was the, the purpose of Israel when God says to Abraham, I'm going to raise up descendants for you, so many you can't even count them. And I'm going to bless the nations through you. And the church has that calling, that God would use us to bless the world. But in order for us to do that, we need to be the kind of agents that God wants us to be. And so when you read this prophecy, you find, and you see this lots of other places in Scripture, you find that to be the agents God wants us to be really means that he wants us to be holy like he is holy. God calls us to be holy people. Now, you start talking about holiness, and it it makes us a little bit nervous because we have images in our mind of strictness and narrowness. We talk about rules and regulations, what you can do and can't do, and all these things. And that's how we often interpret holiness. But that's not what he's saying. What he's really saying is to be holy is to be like God. Is to have the heart of God, the mind of God, the eyes of God, the hands of God. Everything about God, that's our desire. And we can't make ourselves holy. God is asking us to have a desire, a want to, to be like him. In the beginning of this prophecy, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, return to me and I will return to you. And he doesn't mean you take the first step and then I'll do something. What he's saying is... I've, I've, give, I've taken a hundred steps. I'm just waiting for you to take a hundred and one. And then you'll see all the things I can do in your life. But that's just the beginning. That's where it starts. When you move on through the prophecy, chapter 3 talks about the, the high priest Joshua, who is dressed in filthy rags. And he says, we need to do something about that. And he gives him new, clean, pure clothes as a symbol of what God's going to do for his people. You get to chapter 8, and he talks about God's holy mountain, this place where God's people dwell that is, that is like God. It is holy because God is present. And then you come to the very last two verses of the entire prophecy in chapter 14. And he talks about how the, the bells, the reins of the horses, are going to be inscribed with holy to the Lord. No longer will those horses be concerned mostly about taking them into war for battle. They will, be, they will be agents that are used to spread the holiness of God to other people. And then he talks about these bowls, these pots that people have in the temple and in their houses. The, the, when the, they built the temple, they brought in all kinds of, of appliances and tools and things that they could use. And they have forks and knives and bowls and all of this stuff. And the bowls, once they're in the temple and they're consecrated, they're now holy to God. They are not like the bowls that everybody has in their houses. But God says on that day, all of that will be changed because my holiness will permeate everything, including my people. That is God's design for us, to be holy people like him. And we start that now. 
But I think because we get confused about what holiness is, we, we are hesitant about it. And we think it means perfection. And we think it means that we're sinless. And that's what it means to be holy. I think when you look at Scripture as a whole, I think what you find is maybe the best definition of holiness might be humility. In John 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples and that last night before the, he goes, he's arrested. And he says to them, you're going to, be, you're going to be imprisoned, you're going to be murdered, you're going to be opposed by people who think that they are doing a holy service for God. And I, that, that verse struck me a few weeks ago and I, and I hadn't thought of it that way before because I've always thought, when I think about the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders who eventually killed Jesus, I've always thought that they were just evil people. But Jesus seems to imply that the problem is arrogance. The problem is they think they're right and no one's going to tell them any difference. And so when Jesus speaks to them about things that are different from how they think, they reject him. When Jesus brings a word from God that doesn't line up with what they think is right, they reject it. And I think when we talk, when we seek holiness, we're really seeking to be humble. We talk about in holiness that we love and we, we care, and I think that's important. But you will, we will never love truly unless our hearts are humble. We can sort of love, we can pretend to love, but if our heart, if that love doesn't, isn't born out of humility, it will always become self-centered. We'll never learn new things about God unless we have a humble heart. We'll never listen to other people unless we have a humble heart. God can work with a humble heart. There's not much God can do with an arrogant spirit. And so he calls us to be humble. It's interesting to me that when, when Paul describes Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, and he says to the church, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, and he describes him by describing his humility. Humility is so vital because holiness is proven and shaped and and understood and lived only in relationship. You cannot be holy outside of relationships. Now, we can, we can attain a certain level of purity, and that's good. But Jesus himself said that if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be holy, you love God and you love others. And that's been God's word from the beginning. So in chapter 7 of Zechariah's prophecy, he, he says to them, look, how you treat other people is vitally important. And, and he talks about how they, they need to judge fairly and show mercy and kindness and don't oppress widows and orphans and foreigners and the poor and don't scheme against each other. And you come to chapter 8 and he repeats some of those same things. And he says that you are to, to render verdicts in your courts that are just and that lead to peace and, and don't scheme against each other and stop telling lies that you swear are the truth. I hate all these things. How you relate to other people is how you understand, how you define, how you shape holiness. John Wesley, who spoke probably about holiness as much as anybody else, said there is no holiness but social holiness. It's all relational. It's all life. See, what we want to do as agents of God's kingdom is we want to escape. But to be agents of God's kingdom, we have to engage. It's easier to escape, but that's not the call of God on our lives. The call of God on our lives is to, like Jesus, step into the messiness and the pain and the struggle and the brokenness and all of the burdens of this world, as risky as that is, that's the call of God's people. That's how holiness is shaped. That's how holiness is shown. Our church, the Wesleyan Church, is rooted in what's called the 19th century holiness movement. 
The reason that we're part of that is because there was an emphasis, as with John Wesley, on holiness. And when the church first started in 1843, there was a clear understanding that to be holy meant to be engaged in the world. And the problems of the world. And, and that holiness for the early founders of our church was specifically related to two primary issues. Abolition and the suffragette movement. And the founders of the church said that if we truly are holy people, then we will do everything we can to give freedom to the slaves. And we'll do everything we can to give the right to vote and and women's rights in general to them. And so much of what the church did was centered around those ways. That was the expression of their holiness and how they would change the world. A hundred years later... And further, we sort of got away from that. And we started feeling the sense of separation and disengagement. And we don't really have anything to do with those things because it's, it's really just about us and Jesus. And so in the, in the 1960s civil rights movement, the march on Selma, there were many Christians there. There were Jews there. There were people of most... Every denomination there, but there were very few, if any, Wesleyans there. And out of our history, we should have been the front lines. We have, in the, in the ensuing years, we've begun to see our errors. And we've come back to the reality of what holiness means. Because if we're going to be God's holy agents in this world, we have to engage with the world. We have to be a part of it. And God's calling Israel not to separate from the world and build walls around themselves, but to be a beacon of light and hope and grace to other people. But here's the thing. We will never be that kind of holy people, never humble holy people who engage with the world until we begin to understand that we are God's treasured possession. Until we understand the depths of God's love for us, how valuable we are to God, we will never give ourselves away in humility and love to other people. You think about people you know in your life who are, sometimes we call them bullies, who are always wanting to argue about them being right. They're not doing that out of a sense of inner security. They're doing that out of insecurity. And when we do that, we're also arguing and and living our lives in a spirit of insecurity, not security. Our insecurity, when when we question whether God really loves us, when we question whether we are valuable to God, that we are his treasured possession, we are always going to act out of that insecurity. And when you act out of insecurity, our goal is to make sure everybody knows we're right I'm not changing my mind. I'm going to fight and crush people if I have to because being right is what makes us think we're going to feel secure. But the only way we ever feel secure is in God. And he says, you're my treasured possession. Chapter 2, verse 8, he says that anybody who harms you harms my treasured possession. The King James says, "You, you touch the apple of my eye. This is who God's people are to him. But understand, we aren't God's treasure possession so that we can say that we're better than other people. We're God's treasure possession that then lives in that security so that we can go out to bring other people into understanding that they are God's treasure possession too. God loves us. God values us. In fact, God values us so much that when you read the scriptures, what you see is a picture of God as a shepherd who keeps rescuing his lost sheep. This idea of shepherd, the shepherds is is prevalent throughout Zechariah's prophecy. Some of the references are to a good shepherd, some to a bad shepherd. But you look at at chapter 9 and and verse 16, and and God says to them, I I am going to, to rescue my people like a shepherd rescues his sheep. This is who God is for us. And when God, when when we... See the picture that Jesus paints in, in, the, in the parable in Luke 15 of the lost sheep. 
The shepherd is not running after that one sheep who's never been in the fold before. That's a sheep that was in the fold and ran. And and this picture, this image that you see here that's in the prayer room, I was looking at it again last night when I was in there. And, And this is our God. This is how God feels about us. He's the shepherd who goes and gets us and and loves us and embraces us and cares for us and finds delight in us, even when we don't do everything he wants us to do. Even when we run, he comes after us because we are so valuable to him. And Israel had a hard time getting that. We have a hard time getting that. I always thought as long as I can remember, that the, the primary central image of, of God seeing Israel as his treasure possession was the Exodus. But I'm beginning to wonder if maybe a better image of God's feelings for Israel is the return from exile. I mean, the, the Israelites are in Egypt not because they sin, but because they, it was actually God's means of rescuing them from famine and certain death. And so through Joseph, all the Jacob and his family go to Egypt and they settle there and they flourish until after years the Egyptians are worried about them and they're insecure. And so they enslave them. And God rescues them from that slavery, not because they sinned, but because they've been enslaved. And he brings them out to be his people. But when you look at the exile, the Israelites are in Babylon for 70 years because they reject God. Because they have decided they would rather worship Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech than Yahweh. And so God says to them finally, says, okay, fine. Worship those gods. Let's see how that works out for you. And they end up as slaves in Babylon. And I think if it were you and me, we would be tempted to say, you know what? You're getting what you deserve. I've rescued you so many times. I'm not doing it again but not Yahweh. He yearns for his people. He loves his people. All of these these words that we read in Zechariah about being treasured possessions are after he rescues them. And he brings them back. And he says, you're my special treasured possession. And when you know that, it changes how you think and live. You can give yourself away when you know that what God does for us and gives us is far greater than anything we could ever give. You can sacrifice. You can risk. Because in God, there really is no risk. And how does God, how does God create the, the purest image of, of how special we are to him? How much he loves you, human beings? It's through Jesus. And ultimately, it all comes back to Jesus. Zechariah has more, uh, more words in Zechariah about the Messiah than any of the other minor prophets. Not even close. You read through the Gospels, you will see over and over again, if you look at the references, many of them come from Zechariah's prophecy. Particularly the passion narrative. It comes back to Jesus. Chapter 6, he talks about the branch that's going to come and, and he's going to rescue his people. And, and God's, in chapter 14, he talks about the, the Feast of Tabernacles and how all the people are going to come and celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles. And I remember I read that the first time and it surprised me because I would have thought they all would have come and, and celebrated the Passover. I mean, that's the big event, the Passover. But it's not. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Now you may, if you go to places where there is a large Jewish population, you will still see many Jewish people celebrate Sukkot. And, and this festival of tabernacles is, is where people, they build little huts, little lean-tos, they live in tents for a week. And you will see that in places of even New York City. And it's commemorating the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness. And God protects them. And they live in their little tents. They live in their little little huts. And it's all surrounding the tabernacle. And God protects them. They have clothes. Their clothes never wear out. They have food to eat. They have water to drink. They are completely taken care of. And God says, I'm doing this because I love you. 
because I want to be with you. Of course, the ultimate example of that is what John says in this first chapter of his gospel. He says, the word became flesh and in one translation, pitched his tent among us. Right down in the middle of us. This is our God. He loves to be with us. And he will go to the greater lengths than we could ever imagine for us to know how valuable we are in him. If you were here this summer, you heard Cindy preach, and one of the things she talked about was uh, our, our little granddaughter, who's two and a half. When we go to their house, or if she's at our house and one of us comes in the door, first thing she usually says is, shoes off. Shoes off, Grandpa. Shoes off, Grandma. And so, in fact, she just said to me this week, and in fact, she started untying my shoes because she wanted to get those shoes off. And it took us a little while to figure out why she was doing that. What was, what was the logic of that? And then we realized, in her mind, when you take your shoes off, you're staying. You know, most people don't run outside in their socks. So if you're going to go someplace, you, you have to wear shoes. So if you take your shoes off, you have to stay. And she wants us to stay. And that made me think about the story of Moses and the burning bush. Moses is out in the, you know, watching the sheep. He looks up, there's a bush. He says to himself, hey, that bush is burning, but it's not burning up. I better go check this out. And he goes and he stands in front of it. And God says to him, Moses, you're on holy ground. Take off your shoes. Shoes off. And what struck me about that was that God never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already done. And I'm convinced that in the metaphorical sense, when God comes down to this earth to meet with Moses, he's taking his shoes off. He's going to stay with us. He's going to dwell among us. He's going to live with us. And God walks barefoot. And we see that no more clearly than in Jesus, the word become flesh. That's how much God loves us. When people think about prophecy, they tend to think of fear. You know, the images you see in places like Zechariah and Revelation. These, these images that frighten us. And quite frankly, there's a period of time in the church where we like to use those prophecies for that very reason, to frighten people. If we can scare them out of hell and into heaven, then it's good. And so we tried to scare everybody we could. But that's not really the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy, and you see this again in those first eight chapters of Zechariah, the purpose of prophecy is to awaken us. To awaken us so that we might get a vision of who God is and who we are and who we can be in him. God loves you. You are his cherished possession. And he's calling you and me as his cherished possessions to be his holy agents in this world. Grace and hope to people who desperately need it. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for who you are and who you have made us to be and who we can be in you. Help us to be who you want us to be. We pray this through Christ. Amen. I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God from all that he's given to us.
the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.